and welcome to episode 1961 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindberg of The Ringer. Hey, Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm more well-rested than usual. Oh, I'm uh, less well-rested than uh, usual. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that, mm. but uh, yeah, I've actually gotten some sleep lately. I'm Good. I'm on, I'm on leave as uh, I've mentioned to you, I'm I'm on parental leave. I, I didn't become a parent again. Still a parent of the same kid, but we have the luxury of spreading out our parental leave a little. We have uh, nice parental benefits because the Ringer is owned by Spotify, and Spotify is in Sweden, and Sweden gives people nice things. <laughs> so we get to spread it out in chunks a little bit over the first few years of your kid's life, if you'd like to. So took a couple months initially, as people will recall. I was missing from the pod for a month or so, and now I'm taking a little more. So anyone who's wondering why I haven't written or podcasted at The Ringer in a couple of weeks and probably won't for the next few weeks, that's why. Obviously still doing the podcast and still doing some writing on my own time, but it's been nice. It's been restful. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. quite pleased that that is true. I um, helped to shepherd a raise list across the finish line yesterday. Mm. So that's why I'm not well rested, but I am satisfied. You know, it's not like having a child, but they are kind of like my children <laughs> in a yeah. weird I mean- way. Not the raise themselves. That's a weird boundary thing, but the list, the list <laughs> no, of the rights. the list, yeah, yeah. Often a laborious birth, I would imagine, in some cases. <laughs> um, yeah, it has its moments, you know, where you're like, wow, are there, are, are there this many guys? But the answer, Ben, is, you know, yeah, there are. So mm-hmm. it mostly feels, um, well, there are a couple of times of year when it feels the most satisfying, you know, like the top 100 going live when the last list is done. But you know the place where I really feel the the satisfaction of the um, the depth of the effort that mm. that Eric brings is around the trade deadline. Yeah. When uh you know there will be lower level guys, guys you and I have not heard of. I mean I yeah. have heard of, but have since forgotten because right. there are so many of them. And uh, you know it's not that there's a report on every single one of them, but there are a report on a lot of them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, that's so nice. So yeah. anyway. Eric ranked only 48 raised prospects this year, so 59 last year. So I guess well, the, the system must be thinning out. <laughs> yeah, relatively, but yeah. also only relatively to itself, relative to the rest of the league, still quite deep. It's sort of like clutch, you know, where it's self-referential. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you remember last week when the Athletics' Dan Connolly had the audacity to question Orioles owner John Angelos about the team's finances and the future of the franchise and its ownership and so forth on Martin Luther King Day of all days. And John Angelos, uh, he got a little bit uh, huffy about it and he berated Dan for questioning him at that time and and at that place, uh, despite the fact that Angelos rarely makes himself available at other times and places. And of course, he had scheduled that event for that day and that time. One of the things he said during his several-minute response was uh, that he extended an offer to to Dan and everyone else to just come on down to Camden Yards next week, which is this week as we speak on Friday, and he would throw the books open, just uh, tell them anything they wanted to know about the Orioles and their finances. In fact, I'll, I'll play a quick little clip of him extending that offer. I'm very transparent. In fact... In fact, I would invite you and all your colleagues next week, not on Martin Luther King Day, 
You can come back to this building. You can meet me in this office. I'll take you down on the third floor, and I'll show you the financials of the Orioles. I'll show you the governance of the Orioles. I'll show you everything you want to know, and I'll put all your questions. But today, on MLK Day, I'm not answering any of those questions. Well, Meg, as we speak, uh, it's about to be the end of business hours on the last business day of the week when John Angelos promised that anyone could just show up at, at Oriole Park and get a look at the books. And I am just shocked, shocked to report to you that that has not happened, that uh, the Orioles and Angelos have not followed through on that offer. I really, I just, I can't believe it. I feel like my world has shifted beneath me. <laughs> Yeah. Like I am uh, unsure how to proceed. Yeah. Confused, staggered even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when a team owner says something, you can take that to the bank. And and especially when it's related to team finances. I mean, you can set your watch by that. Like you can yeah. just have full faith that you are just getting the straight dope there and there's no dissembling of any kind going on. And so when this offer was made, really an unprecedented promise to just open the books, which uh, other than a couple of teams that are legally required to do that to some extent, no one ever does. And here was John Angelus just volunteering, just uh, off the cuff, just, hey, come on down. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Anyway, it just uh, really has shaken my faith as well that this has not happened. I mean, I expressed some skepticism last week when we initially talked about this, about whether this supposed meeting would occur. And still, I'm just really, uh, I don't know who to trust anymore. Yeah, I um, I, if you can't. Uh, trust billionaires. Like mm-hmm. who? Who can you trust? Then <laughs> this is the most actively tired I've sounded on the pod in a while. You know, that's my <laughs> that's my feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Orioles uh, have just sort of stonewalled media members' requests yeah. uh, thus far to actually make good on this meeting. The Orioles have said that there's nothing to report, which is not surprising. There's usually nothing to report when it comes to team finances, but I don't know what possessed him to make that offer yeah. at. The time. This is my question. Like, why yeah. not just why not just not do that so that right. you aren't in a position where you look like you're going not just look like are going back on your word. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to to do this. Yeah. You don't, I wonder if he was just to. flustered or he figured no one would follow up. I mean, you had to assume someone would follow up. Why would Dan Connolly not follow up about that? Or whether he just got a little high on his own supply and he was just, you know, yeah. he was rolling and that just that came out all of a sudden. I really don't know what was going through his mind, but maybe he just thought he would not be accountable for that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the rationale is there, but it feels ill-considered. And it's really a shame because, you know, we we have gotten, guff is too strong. We have been the recipients of exasperation in the past, Ben, when fans of teams that feel like they're finally starting to really turn the corner, right, that are come, emerging from a long period of being irrelevant on the competitive landscape, right? Like in that, the yellow fallow period on the Carrie, Carrie Matheson? Mm-hmm. Ma- yep. Matheson is her last name actually Matheson or am I thinking of the yep, no, that's right. player yep. you know like the yellow period on her on her board mm-hmm. her big paranoid board <laughs> and you know the feeling that you want to access most primarily when you're a fan in that situation is 
excitement. Mm -hmm. And we want to acknowledge that excitement because we think that's important. But we also have to talk about the game as it is and these owners as they are. And I would just say to to the Orioles ownership group, like, let us say nice stuff about your team. How about, Mm -hmm. you know, because this is uh, is a really exciting squad. It's exciting at the big league level. They have such great young players they have some interesting complimentary guys they have reinforcements on the way from the minor leagues that could really you know vault them into a new era of orioles baseball but instead we're talking about this so you know to stop it yeah once the season rolls around i'm sure we'll be spending plenty of time talking about the orioles on the field too because there's a lot to be excited about that team and that roster as you're saying and and they really turned a corner last year yeah and uh hopefully they can stay around that corner this year and be even more exciting but yeah there's still questions about the level of investment in that roster because uh it's pretty inexpensive right now and and they've got a great crop of prospects here and they've certainly had a a long more than yellow fallow period it's been it's been dark red times in baltimore for for years now but they've come out of it with seemingly the foundation of a, a great competitive team even in a tough division so i'm looking forward to seeing what the euros can do but i i think the angeles ownership stewardship of the franchise is is not one of the reasons to be excited it is uh you can be excited in spite of that i think but but that in itself is not necessarily a reason so you just have to hope that they will surround this current core that they've developed with some other supplementary players at some point as needed yeah there's there's more work to be done here and it would be nice if we could approach a time when we're like and now they are setting about their work you know and yes. have it be about that. And I don't say that like we will neglect talking about, you know, th- when the team doesn't do the stuff that they're supposed to. We're going to have to engage with that stuff too. But it's nice to be able to offer a balance to these things because ultimately the reason we're here is because we like the the play on the field and they have mm-hmm. such exciting players. We don't want to do a disservice to their exciting young guys like they mm-hmm. they you know should get their shine so yeah, yeah i think orioles fans could be excited about the players and and also miffed at yeah. ownership at the same time they yeah. did acquire cole irvin so how about that how about orioles that? fever cole irvin catch <laughs> the fever it's something i mean look there have been times when cole irvin might have been the best pitcher on that staff <laughs> so yeah. it's it's progress i guess and and Geez, talking about ownership. I mean, if you're an Oakland A and you're even like nearing, I mean, if you're arbitration eligible, like yeah. you don't even have to be on the verge of free agency or anything. It's like if you're in your Arbeers, you're out of there. Yeah. <laughs> like they're just cleaning house to a, an extent that even previous house cleanings have not cleaned quite so thoroughly. Yeah, they're like... Yeah. They're doing the kind of house cleaning I do after, well, after opening day when it's like, well, I've um, been helping to prep opening day stuff and the house is disgusting. (laughs) Also, did you note that they um, managed to get another Kyle in their their trade? Yeah, right. Yet another Kyle, Kyle Verbitsky, yeah. They have a lot of, they're... There's some Kyles on that roster, you know? They have a number of Kyles floating around. It's a Kyle-rich environment, yeah. (laughs) So a couple other developments. Uh, The Astros have a GM. How about that? Yeah, how about that? 
that hasn't been the case for a few months, right? So after Astro's owner, Jim Crane, essentially ran James Click out of town yeah. on the heels of winning a World Series, there was just a, a vacancy. Yeah. And Crane seemed to be operating on his own and with some input from Jeff Bagwell, a trusted yeah. advisor and assistant GM, Bill Furcus. Well, now they have hired an honest-to-goodness general manager, Dana Brown. So Dana Brown comes from Atlanta, and I I think the interesting thing about this, I I guess there are a couple interesting things. So first of all, good to have a GM, you know, probably better to have one than not have one. The Astros weren't super active this winter, and they probably wouldn't have been even if they had had a GM. But teams have generally decided that it's a good thing. It's beneficial to have someone who is actually making your decisions in the baseball operations department and is appointed to do that. And now they have that person. Dana Brown is, uh, I believe, the only current Black GM, yeah, right? Maybe the first, unless I'm forgetting someone since Michael Hill, who was with the Marlins and has been with MLB and and also was in the running for this Astros job. But Dana Brown has uh, been around. He's been with a few different teams. He's accomplished. Uh, He's uh, seen as a proficient talent evaluator. I think the interesting thing, though, is that he's a scouty type, right? I mean- to the extent that it makes sense to draw these distinctions anymore and, and classify people as uh, more on the, the scout side of the spectrum or the statistical side of the spectrum. And it's long become a cliche to say that everyone does both and considers both. And we know all that. So stipulated. But he has had uh, very scouting specific appointments. He was the vice president of scouting for the Braves, where he oversaw a bunch of drafts that yielded excellent players, Michael Harris and, and Spencer Strider and Von Grissom and Shate Langoliers with the A's now and on and on. And he's been one of the co-workers and, and right-hand men of Alex Anthopoulos now at a few different stops because before he was with the Braves, he was with the Blue Jays as a special assistant to the GM when Anthopolis was there. And then prior to that, he was the director of scouting for the Expos, right? I think when they were the Expos and then when they became the Nationals too. And so he's had a a long relationship with Anthopolis. I guess he hired Anthopolis initially with the Expos. And Really, that's a a bit of a philosophical change for the Astros, probably, right? To go from the extreme of Jeff Lunau and then Ray's executive, James Click, to someone who is known as a a scout and that kind of talent evaluator. So I don't know how much that reflects a shift in philosophy for the front office as a whole or not, but it's it's definitely a different side of the spectrum, I would say. Yeah, it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see both how it, I mean, obviously it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but it's also interesting to think about how obvious any changes are going to be to us from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Because the leadership is different and presumably he will bring in some of his own folks and was hired with a particular philosophy and direction for the team in mind. But a lot of the existing personnel and infrastructure is the same, right? It's not like Mm -hmm. they've had this huge house cleaning at the mid or lower levels of the organization. So I do wonder how much of a difference it's going to end up making and what are, you know, what are going to be our little signals like, oh, they're doing this thing a little bit differently than they used to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Click left and then uh, clicks uh, number two left at the same time. Right. And then movement at the upper levels for sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pete Patilla left and went to the Giants. Right. And and so there was 
some degree of house cleaning just after the sign stealing scandal and, and Click coming in and then a little bit when Click left and, and evidently Click and Crane clashed and that's hard to say i was really i'm impressed that i pulled that off you crushed it (laughs) nailed it i had to think about it i had to slow my pace for a second to to make it come out okay but yeah there's been I, i think a bit of a shift in that you had jeff bagwell sort of spouting off late last year about the direction of the team and and i think you know some of his comments were reasonable and and maybe even got taken out of context a, a little bit i think the headline grabbing aggregated kind of comment was that he was saying that he thought the Astros had gone too far in the analytics direction. And he had some quotes about how, you know, uh, sort of cliches about how players are people and they're not numbers and all that, which can at times be sort of like a an old school, like I don't like numbers type of perspective, but also there is truth to it. And, and in fact, I think there's probably a lot of truth to the idea that the Astros under Lunau at least maybe did go too far in the direction direction of of not treating people like people or you know right. not considering soft factors and so forth right which is why there was a lot of discontent in that front office so i thought that some things bagwell said you know while kind of cliched probably some truth to it and and maybe even a necessary corrective for that franchise and he even acknowledged that on the pitching side in particular, there's been a lot of benefit to analytics and he shouted out, you know, spin rate and teaching people pitches and all the things about pitching that they've learned and been able to apply. So I thought that some of what he said had some value. But when you had Click being driven out basically by sort of an unserious offer yeah. to an executive whose team had just won the World Series and then yeah. you had... Jeff Bagwell riding in from the 90s, you know, sort of saying, well, we've gone too far in the Sats direction. And then you hire Dana Brown. And I should say he goes back even further than the resume I listed because he started as a scout and a cross checker for the Pirates, I guess, in the Mm. 90s. So he's been doing this uh, a long time, you know, even pre-Moneyball days. So I don't know whether that suggests that Crane thought yeah, we need to make some kind of correction, course correction here. Because the curious thing is that they've been extraordinarily successful. Yeah. Right? Like even post sign stealing days. I mean, they just won a World Series. Yeah. And J- they just. Yeah. Like they are the most recent team. They are the reigning. Won. They are the reigning <laughs> champions. Yes, they are. And yet they've uh, made sort of a shift here, which is which is weird because usually it's like don't mess with success. Like obviously yeah. this is working well for us, but it seems like some combination of of Crane just meddling a bit, and and there was even reporting about like maybe Dusty Baker won't come back, which which is weird. Like given all that we've been talking about here about treating people like people and how yeah. good Dusty Baker seemingly is at that, but it's not typically the time to pivot when you're right. riding high and you're winning tons of games and you're right. getting to the ALCS every year or winning the World Series a lot of the time. Yeah, it's a real mixed bag. It's like what do you how do you assess if we assume that this is meant to be a move towards something that is more like a more humanistic approach to running the organization, which, you know, it also might be a more meddlesome on the part of the owner approach to running the organization. We've seen evidence of that this offseason too. It's like, can you take, you know, if we look at how the folks who just won a World Series left the organization and think like some of that feels like it wasn't maybe the best, like to give that 
GM a, a, an unserious offer and and have him walk out the door. But then you're doing that maybe to turn to something that is a little more focused on people. I don't know. It's a weird, it's a really weird mix. I don't know if I know what I think of them yet. You know, there mm-hmm. have been times you'll be shocked to discover uh, where I have felt like I have a really good handle on sort of the vibe of the Astros organization. I don't know what, I don't have a good sense of that at this juncture. Right. So yeah. Right. And so we'll see sort of how much of the processes that were put in place by the departed people yeah. are maintained and and whether they want to maintain them or yeah. whether they actually want to go in a different direction. And I don't mean to suggest that Dana Brown isn't fully conversant with the, all the new ways of evaluating oh, players because yeah. I'm yes. sure he is. You know, yes. I mean, it's it's a continuing education to be a baseball executive yeah. and the Braves, as, as much as they value the scouting side of things, I mean, they have tons of stat people too, including yeah. – former Astros stat people, right. you know, Mike Fast and Colin Wires yeah. are, are with Atlanta. So yeah. it's it's not an either or, obviously. Right. Yes. And I, yeah, I, just, I certainly don't want to imply that there's some deficiency on Brown's part in terms of his handle on that stuff. I, I imagine that it's quite good, you know, so. Right. Yeah. And it's the kind of profile that probably should be hired more often. And yeah. it seems like so often it's kind of your cookie cutter 30 something, you know, person coming right. from finance uh, or or some kind of quantitative field. And very often it's a white guy. Right. And this is a different demographically speaking. I mean, race wise, age wise, background wise. So there should be all those kinds of diversity when it comes to running baseball teams, ideally. Yeah. And when you can combine the sort of on the ground experience of having been a baseball person for a long time with, you know, at the very least an appreciation of and handle on the analytics side. I think that that's a really potent combination. So mm-hmm. yeah, too many Ivy Leaguers. I don't know if, if that's true. Ivy Leaguers, uh, they have qualifications too, but it seems like yeah, all but the, like, the GMs, they get pulled from the same few schools. Yeah, they're so. not wanting for representation, Ben. I think no, it's fine for us to know that. They're, <laughs> yes. they're doing fine. You know, it's like if mm-hmm. you say eh, maybe one less, they're not going to suddenly go <laughs> yeah. to have a small, um, what am I? <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of them. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Dana Brown went to Seton Hall and he played baseball there and he was uh, actually drafted as a player and played some minor league ball, too. So you, you have uh, fewer and fewer executives at the top level who, who played baseball yeah. professionally, too. So, yeah, a throwback in, in certain respects. All right. Uh, just a couple other things. We did not mention a trade that was made earlier this week. Michael A. Taylor to the Twins. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to to point that out because it's notable, I think, that the Twins now, they have Byron Buxton and then they, they have Byron Buxton at home, basically. Like, not that Michael A. Taylor is anything comparable to Byron Buxton offensively. Right. But- Defensively, he is among the closest comps, right, in that they are both elite center fielders. And it's been fairly rare, I think, that the Twins have had a backup for Buxton whose glove rivaled Buxton's or even came close. And in Michael A. Taylor, they now, I mean, if you sort defensive runs saved, 
center fielders since 2015, which is Buxton's first season and Taylor's, I, I think, first full season. And there may be some some qualifying issues here if you just look at center field. It, it's not necessarily always while you're playing center field. It's like when you were a primary center fielder or something. But right. just looking over that span on the Fangrass defensive run saved leaderboard, Byron Buxton and Michael A. Taylor are third and fourth over that span in defensive run saved for yeah. primary center fielders. So you have now to back up Buxton, you have basically the closest <laughs> comp. And Taylor, his defensive skills have been quite resilient, even though he's uh, he's going to be 32 in March. And as we've said, center field tends to be a young man's game. But this is pretty important because I don't know if you know this, but Byron Buxton, not exactly an Iron Man. You know, you can't always count on putting his name into the lineup there. And in fact, since 2015, I believe he has played fewer than half of the Twins' total innings among center fielders or primary center fielders. And I note that over that span, he has 68 defensive runs saved, but the Twins' uh, center fielders credited on on this list as center fielders collectively have 57. So the non-Byron Buxton twin center fielders have been significantly below average defensively as a group. And now, maybe for the first time, you have someone you can pencil in there if Buxton can't go, who is really going to give you almost what Buxton gives you on one side of the ball. So that's pretty important. Like, obviously, you hope that Buxton will just play and will not get hurt and will stay healthy, and that would be ideal. But we've talked before about that stat that always makes the rounds about the Twins' record in games with and without Buxton or when Buxton is starting or not starting. And I think part of that is that there's an offensive downgrade when he isn't in the lineup. But a big part of it, too, is that there's a big defensive downgrade, too. So yeah. if you can get Michael A. Taylor out there when Buxton is unable to play, then that's uh, that's pretty big. Yeah, It's like uh, an unsung acquisition, I think. So I'm singing it now because we didn't sing it when it actually happened. Yeah, I like this strategy that teams are employing where they're like, what if all of the outfielders were just center fielders, though? Sure. Like, yeah. what if, you know, what if we made the whole plane out of center fielders? Mm-hmm. So I like it. I think it's yeah. good, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it cost them a couple of prospects, Evan Sisk and Steven Cruz. And, you know, like he's coming off his second best offensive season, Taylor is, and it was still a below average bat. Like he's he's not a very good hitter usually, but that's okay. If he's just a good defensive sub and backup, then I think that's a big deal. If you're a team with Byron Buxton, who everyone's just sort of waiting to ha- have him have that full healthy season where he's an MVP caliber player because he often is when he's on the field. But when you know that you have a player who is not always available, then it's extra important to have a a quality backup, at least defensively speaking, at a premium position. So I think they have uh, filled that slot better than they have in the past, perhaps. Yeah, agreed. All right. And just a couple of follow-ups on our topic du jour of the ways that baseball is different from other sports. So last time we talked about one way that was submitted by a listener, which is that baseball has a song that is just about baseball and everyone sings it at an appointed time at every game. And there's a seventh inning stretch and then you get Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And we talked about how other sports, they have fight songs and team specific songs, but not so much just a a general, hey, how about this sport? 
sort of song that everyone sings. And we got some emails from hockey fans who pointed out that there is kind of a close equivalent in hockey. It's the hockey song by Canadian Stompin' Tom Connors. So the hockey song, which uh, I'll, I'll play a little clip of the hockey song. Oh, take me where the hockey players face off down the rink And the Stanley Cup is all filled up for the champs who win the drink Now the final flick of a hockey stick and a one gigantic scream The puck is in, the home team wins the good old hockey game Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name And the best game you can name is the good old So this is a a song that was uh, originally recorded or released in the 70s, uh, 50 years ago on the album Stompin' Tom and the Hockey Song. They began to play this game before Ottawa Senators games in 1992. And then the coach of the Maple Leafs at the time, Pat Burns, he had it be played at at Toronto games too and so now it's played commonly all over the place in the US in Canada in the NHL in European hockey etc i think it's different in that there isn't always an exact set time that you play it there are times that some teams play it but it's not like okay uh, this period is over and so it's time for the hockey song and everyone knows and it's not played everywhere but This is a fairly close equivalent. This is like Michael A. Taylor is to Byron Buxton as the hockey song is to take me out to the ballgame. So it sort of exists. I feel embarrassed that we didn't know, Ben. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't remember. You know, I have been to a grand total of two NHL games in my Mm -hmm. life, and I didn't hear the hockey song at those. Yeah. No, it's it's not ubiquitous. And and I've been to hockey games, but... Probably at the time when I was going to them, mostly like when the Rangers were good when I was a kid, the the hockey song was not being played at that time in most places. But want to recognize the hockey song belatedly. And new nominations, just a, a couple today. So here's one from Aaron, Patreon supporter, who says, thinking about another way baseball is different from other sports. This is tied to the fact that there's no clock in baseball, which we have previously discussed. But compared to other team sports, baseball is unique in its use of timeouts, both in number and duration. Basically, there is no limit and no set duration. This has changed somewhat recently with the limit of mound visits and with the upcoming pitch clock rules, the pitcher stepping off the mound to reset or the batter being much less likely to call time if a pitcher is taking too long with the pitch clock now in place. But otherwise, umpires raise both their arms to signify a timeout has been granted all the time. Base runners call timeout all the time, particularly after sliding into a base. And unlike, say, basketball, which limits the time given to each team during the timeout, there's no set time between an umpire granting a player time and when the plate umpire points to the pitcher to resume play. Even when a plate umpire goes to the pitcher's mound to break up a mound visit, it is at the discretion of the umpire when to do that. There are no buzzers or horns from the press box to signify the timeout is over. So I think that's a pretty good point. It's it's definitely conforming more closely to other sports over time with some of these rules changes. But certainly historically speaking, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a good one. Yeah. There are limits now, not just on the number of mound visits, but also on the time that they're supposed to take. So yeah, there's no buzzer from the press box. But in theory, at least I think as of 2016, 
it's not supposed to exceed 30 seconds right. on a mound visit. And then you have a certain number of mound visits. And of course, there was always uh, the regulation or for a long time, the regulation about how you can only make one mound visit in an inning before right. removing the pitcher. So there have been some limitations, but especially the even less formal types of timeouts where it's just like, I want to step out of the box for a second, or I right. want to adjust my jock strap, or I want to get some rosin on my hands or whatever it is. Like it's, it's very kind of casual. It's just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You want a timeout here? Take a, take a little timeout. <laughs> well, and then when the, the time is sort of winding down and they really ought to return to play, it takes the form of like, don't you want to be done now? I'm going to yeah. amble out here and right. <laughs> linger in the periphery of your little group hang and then at some point it might be like all right all right let's get back to it yeah so just as as baseball is maybe the most profligate sport when it comes to using equipment and equipment turnover and and the ball replacing the ball so often sort of the same with handing out yeah it's true and i guess that does go hand in hand with the lack of a clock because if there is no big countdown clock then there's less pressure to say no you you can't have a timeout now right but there have been various crackdowns at times and and people being more or less likely to award the timeout when there's a mandate from the commissioner's office to speed things up for instance but but often it's just kind of it's uh, it's based on feel and and sure you, you merit a timeout right now take your time <laughs> take your time <laughs> mm-hmm. And the other nomination that we have, this is from one of our listeners in France, Sebastian, who says, I don't think it has been mentioned so far in your new recurring bit, but one thing that strikes me as unique is the save stat. I fail to see any other example in sports in which creating a statistic led to a complete change of in-game tactics, especially with it sometimes being counterproductive. Zach Britton says, salut. Hitting for a cycle or the triple-double in basketball are quite rare and seldom backfire anyway. So he's pointing not to the save stat specifically or what it represents, but just the fact that once the save stat was introduced and popularized, it really had a dramatic effect eventually on how players were used and how games were managed and how pitching staffs were constructed. And maybe those things would have happened eventually anyway, what with the realizations about max effort pitching and times through the order and everything. But the save stat did sort of prompt, you know, a save situation, right? I mean, right. That's, you bring in certain pitchers at save situations and, and certain pitchers at other times. And that has been very rigid during some eras. So. I don't know. I I welcome suggestions from you or anyone else of something that is equivalent to this in other sports. Oh, gosh. I don't know, Ben. I don't yeah. know. I look forward to the emails giving yeah. us an obvious example, though. Right. Yeah. There are certainly times when there have been rules changes. I mean, like, there didn't used to be three-pointers, right? right. So now, now there are three-pointers, and, and now shooting three-pointers is all the rage, right? But that... Well, it took a long time to introduce, and and that's I don't know if that's exactly the same because that's uh, a way you can score. I mean, that's right. sort of a fundamental difference in the sport. Whereas a save didn't actually change anything about how the game was played. Really, it, it right. you, know, you could award saves retroactively or retrospectively to people who did not know a save existed because it didn't yet, and you can credit them with them if it fit the definition of a save. So it's it's not like the structure of the sport and the scoring rules change. It's just that we started crediting individual players with an accomplishment that previously they had not been credited with. Right. So. I, <sighs> 
I'm sure, I'm sure I mean, there's I can think like, of rule changes, but right. they have like on-field, immediate on-field impact and do change the way that the game proceeds, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, there have been like certainly the shift to more advanced stats uh, has led to different contributions being valued in different ways like in in football people developing the idea that running backs are are fungible right, right? that kind of thing so I, I guess you could say something like that but right but you don't go back in time and like you know era adjust like yeah, run or, yards or, you know like right yeah and hmm i i don't know that i have a perfect equivalent to this i don't either this. Yeah, but I didn't know there was a hockey song. So, <laughs> right. So, what do I know, Ben? What do I even know? Yeah, we're learning a lot during this segment. This is great. Yeah. All right. Well, we welcome further submissions and suggestions. And lastly, I just uh, we talked a little bit about Jeff Kent when we had Jay Jaffe on to discuss the Hall of Fame results last time. Just wanted to say a little more about Jeff Kent because Jeff Kent said a little more about Jeff Kent. And, you know, Jeff Kent, uh, he's a little salty about how the voting went down and the yeah. fact that he was not elected and yeah. he's off the ballot now. And he yeah. uh, got up to, what, 46.5% support and fell off. So he was well short of election, even though he had made some strides recently. And I can see why he's upset about this and, yeah. and why he feels like he might have deserved some support. Because, uh, I mean, even Jay, I, I think, has written that when he saw Jeff Kent's Jaws score initially, he was surprised that Kent didn't come closer to the yeah. standard. And so I think if you feel like Jeff Kent is, is Hall of fame I think that's defensible. And as we said with Jay, there's a, a good chance, I think, that he'll get in via the ERA committee. Yeah. And if he does, I won't raise a big stink, you know, relative to other candidates who have gotten in that right. way. I think he is more qualified than some, certainly. And Do you want to name them, Ben? <laughs> I will refrain from naming them this time, but I've named some in the past. But that's so he, diplomatic of you. He has this winning stat, like the, the one special stat right. that I think helps to get you in, which is most home runs by a second baseman, right? And and it's very specifically most home runs hit while playing second base, so right. not most home runs hit by anyone who has ever played second base or spent a significant you know you have to sort of parse it specifically but he has that and when you hear that you think oh well how can you have the most home runs of any second baseman ever and not be in the hall like it's sort of persuasive to a lot of people and i i think he falls short ultimately of the statistical standards at least because a he played largely in in a high offense era so if you do do the era and park adjustments and everything still a very good hitter but perhaps not as elite as he might look otherwise. Right. And then, of course, he's not giving you a ton of ancillary value, right? He's uh, not giving you a lot of value in the field or on the bases and, in fact, may have subtracted value in the field. Not that he's uh, truly terrible at second base, but there were certainly times where he was hurting his teams with the glove, most likely. And... uh, There have been some responses to him not getting in. You know, people aggrieved about that. And a point that Joe Posnanski made in a recent edition of his newsletter is that people are sort of warping his case. Like you can construct a a good 
on the level, you know, just intellectually honest, good faith case for Jeff Kent, but it gets distorted as it does for a lot of people sometimes, right? So John Morosi, for instance, called him the greatest power hitting second baseman ever. And then others made even wackier claims, I think. Uh, (laughs) Chris Carlin tweeted, might be the greatest offensive second baseman of all time and is certainly top three. Adam Shine tweeted that uh, he's the best offensive second baseman ever. So people are extrapolating from most home runs hit as a second baseman to just best power hitting second baseman and just best offensive second baseman, which is uh, pretty wild. I mean, he's not a better power hitter than, say, Rogers Hornsby, for instance, or he's not a better offensive second baseman than Eddie Collins or Jackie Robinson or Joe Morgan or Nap Lajoie or Bobby Gritch or or even Robinson Cano or right. Jose Altuve, at least pre-decline phase, or, you know, Charlie Geringer. I mean, there are a lot of guys who are just going by WRC Plus or era-adjusted isolated power or whatever metric you use would be well ahead of Jeff Kent. So having hit the most home runs by a second baseman, that's a that's a nice perk. That's a good qualification. You yeah. can make a, a reasonable case there, but let's not <laughs> take that too far right. and say that that means things that it doesn't mean. But, you know, he came out with some comments, uh, Jeff Kent himself, texting, I think, Susan Slusser, who wrote about this for the San Francisco Chronicle, And, you know, other people had alleged that maybe Jeff Kent didn't get more support because he was known as a a prickly personality. And so people were saying that voters potentially were withholding votes because he didn't make nice to the writers. And I doubt that that's a a big factor here. You know, you can't rule out that there is not someone at some point who had a less than positive interaction with Jeff Kent and decided to hold a grudge or even like just subconsciously, you know, he's a borderline guy. It could go either way. If I thought he was just a great dude and, and had great interactions with him, then maybe I'd be more inclined to throw him a vote than not. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe that has happened. I think for the most part, voters are able to put those things aside when they vote, unless they're going full character clause, in which case they maybe consider them a whole lot. But I don't think that's the the primary reason why he didn't get more support than he did. But He's not pleased, and here's what he said. The voting over the years has been too much of a head-scratching embarrassment. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. (laughs) Baseball is losing a couple generations of great players that were the best in their era because a couple non-voting stat folks keep comparing those players to players already voted in from generations past and are influencing the votes. It's unfair to the best players in their own era and those already voted in, in my opinion. Steroids clouded the whole system, too, and with the reduction of eligibility years to clear the ballot deck, I got caught up in it all, I guess. So I don't know if he's alluding to anyone in particular there. I mean, it sounds like it's almost a a Jay Jaffe Jaws reference, although Jay obviously is a voter now. But his complaint that players are being compared to players from previous eras, I mean, isn't that to some degree how it's always worked and how it should work? (laughs) Right? Like, it's the Hall of Fame. It's it's an all-eras thing. So you do sort of have some standards that are set by the group as a whole that it seems like you should be comparing players to past players to, I would think. Yeah, it's it's always a tricky thing because you want to, like having the the reaction of disappointment because you didn't 
make it into the hall. That feels... It's not like he had a bad career, right? He had a good career. Mm -hmm. He maybe didn't have a Hall of Fame-worthy career. I know that there, like you said, there are arguments to be made to counter that if one is inclined to make them. But like, how do you how do you sit across the room from someone and be like, no, you're just not a Hall of Famer, like you know? mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that there aren't parts of the the critique of the process that aren't valid or that might need tweaking. Like we are big fans of. of tweaking the Hall of Fame process, but mm-hmm. sometimes he's not a Hall of Fame right Yeah, and as far as I know, he wasn't like a bad dude. I mean, he was yeah. uh, maybe not the the warmest or or the cuddliest, but I, I don't know of any other huge uh, marks on his record. Like everyone talks about the the falling off his truck and uh, or you know claiming that he got hurt falling off his truck while washing it, and really he was on his motorcycle. I mean, okay, but you know, yeah. <laughs> unless you're gonna, I guess you could you could count that if you want to take the the character integrity clause very literally. I guess you could count that against him, but really it pales in comparison yeah. to many other players on the ballot and their their issues. So um, yeah, that doesn't feel like the way it is meant to be deployed you know no yeah and, and i again like i see he has a grudge like if if you know he could look at billy wagner who's getting more support and say like i was a more valuable player than billy wagner i mean we talked about relievers in the hall of fame last time so maybe billy wagner was uh, an even better reliever than jeff kent was a second baseman but in terms of relative value i'd take jeff kent any day and even like uh look todd helton who's on this cusp of election now Jeff Kent has a, a higher career fan graphs war than Todd Helton for sure. what it's worth. So like he's he's in the vicinity, right? And so I see why he is uh, sort of upset, although, you know, he says he's moved on and he said, congrats, Scott Rowland. And, you know, I, I don't think he sent the text unsolicited. I'm sure he was asked for right. his reaction. Right. So he's uh, certainly entitled to share it. One thing I, I wanted to say about him, because one of the comments made, it, it seems like Rich Aurelia is is often trotted out as like his uh, defensive character witness, like for his glove, for him as a fielder, because uh, John Morosi tweeted, all-star shortstop Rich Aurelia told me can't turn the double play as well as anyone he played beside. So that kind of caught my eye. And and Susan's uh, article also has some defensive endorsements by Rich Aurelia, who's, uh, you know, he played a fair amount. He was the double play partner of Kent and Rich Aurelia, Aaron Judge's favorite player growing up, which amuses me for some reason. Huh. But I got curious about this uh, contention by Aurelia that Jeff Kent was uh, as good as any double play partner he played beside. And I asked Russell Carlton, a baseball prospectus friend of the show, just to run a, a little check on this because I was curious. So this is it's not a full stat blast. I don't think we need to play the song. This is it's a mini blast. It's a contained blast. It's a, a lower payload than usual. But <laughs> Russell ran some numbers, <laughs> which I will oh, share. No. <laughs> it's like a sparkler. Yeah, right. A stat exactly. sparkler. Yeah, a stat sparkler. We need a I'm new trying song to think of a, you know, like a thing that doesn't sound like it needs the guy from the Hurt Locker. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's the stat fireworks, I guess. No one's going to get hurt here potentially. So he was able to check on this, and the way he did it was uh, he looked for the rates of double play completion, basically, because Aurelia was testifying to Kent's double play turning abilities specifically. And so he was able to look 
for times when Aurelia was on the field. So Aurelia was at shortstop. Kent was at second. And then there was a ground ball hit either to Aurelia or to the third baseman. And there was a potential double play. So it was a double play situation. And there was a ground ball hit to those people. And then it was thrown to Kent at second. So Kent Mm. was the, the pivot person. And then he looked at the rate at which the double play was completed. So sometimes there would just be a force at second and there would be no out at first, but there was at least a fielder's choice. And then sometimes there would be the completed double play and they would turn the whole thing. So he looked at the rate of these opportunities where the double play was actually turned. And then he looked for situations where Aurelia was playing short and either Kent was the second baseman or someone else was the second baseman and uh, just was able to compare basically to see whether the rate was higher with Kent at second base or other second baseman at second base. And it basically backs up what Aurelia said here. Uh, Kent seems to have been perfectly competent, if not above average, at turning the double play. So controlling for all those things when Aurelia was on the field, the double play happened 67.4% of the time with Kent and 63.1% of the time with some other second baseman. So there was an advantage in the Kent times. Now, I think there are a few complicating factors here. The first thing is that Kent was uh, by far Aurelia's most common double play partner. Mm. So it's uh, sort of a disproportionate percentage of the time. Like there's not as much without you as there is with you here. So that's part of it because Aurelia, you know, he didn't really play shortstop primarily after age 32 or so. And so much of his shortstop playing coincided with Kent being in San Francisco alongside him. And and Kent was pretty durable and played a lot of second base. So there's not that much of uh, without to compare to. So there's uh, that caveat. And there's also the caveat, like Kent was the second baseman for like half of of the opportunities, basically. And then the other caveat is that uh, Aurelia's time without Kent was mostly very early and very late in his career. So it's possible that Aurelia was not at his best defensively during his without Kent times. And then the other thing is that J.T. Snow was the first baseman basically for the entire time that Aurelia was at short and Kent was at second. And Snow doesn't really have great modern defensive metrics, but he had a great reputation as a defensive first baseman and won a bunch of gold gloves. So, you know, the first baseman plays some part in turning the double play too. So the with Kent portion of the Aurelia career would also be with Snow a lot of the time. So some some skewing uh, confounding factors here. I don't actually know the precise distribution of credit among the defensive participants in a double play. Like recently, Russell determined that the breakdown of credit or responsibility when it comes to a runner being thrown at it first or beating it out is 92 to 8 in favor of the guy who fields and throws the ball. And the first baseman is the 8. So what would it be on a double play? I don't know. I would guess that in descending order of responsibility, it would go from the feeder to the turner to the receiver. So the guy who 
gloves and feeds the ball, and then the guy who gets the force at second and makes the pivot, and then the first baseman. But I don't know exactly how the credit for the feeder and turner would compare. The first baseman and pitcher and catcher also have to help hold the runner at first so that you can force him at second. But as best as we can tell... Kent was uh, perfectly fine at this and really as good as anyone else that Aurelia played with regularly. And so I, I think it's it's kind of true. It holds up. And the only other thing I'll say is that I asked Russell to check during those years when that trio was together, Aurelia, Kent, and Snow, for the Giants, which was 1997 to 2002. I asked him just to compare for those years, just to kind of control for the, the snow factor. And (laughs) during those seasons, the success rate was 67.7% with Kent and 70% with other second basemen. So again, sort of small sample. It's only like 80 opportunities. And probably in some of those, Kent was the first baseman. But if you control for and just limit it to that time, then it is true that other second basemen were a little bit more successful at turning the double play than Kent was, even though probably... The other second basemen were like replacements, people who were playing out of position, you know, and and I'd imagine that there's probably some benefit to a double play combo, like the more they play together, probably they learn each other's uh, double play ways, right? You know, like, you know, it's like you got to learn the dance steps, I guess. So there's probably like an initial adjustment period before you can effectively tango together as double play partners with the right rhythm. So I don't know whether that's the case. It it doesn't appear that uh, Aurelia and Kent really got better over time. If anything, they seem to get less successful toward the end. But, you know, there's probably something to that. Anyway... I think it it more or less holds up. I think Aurelia is is justified in saying that Kent was as good as anyone he played with in turning the double play. Although probably Aurelia just like didn't have the best defensive second baseman during his career. So, you know, I don't know that he's comparing it to elite gloves there because Russell said that since 1990, just looking at all second baseman minimum 100 chances, Kent is 97th out of 211 in terms of uh, double play turning success rate. So he's, you know, kind of middle of the pack or or closer to the bottom than the top. But he's fine. He was fine. He was fine. You know, it's like you say one thing and then a couple nerds on a podcast sit there and dissect it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 15 minutes. Yeah. Wonder how it feels, Ben. You know, it how does it feel? feel? Great. Yeah. No. I don't know. I mean, text maybe it's Susan Slusser to complain about the non-voting uh, yeah. staff people who are who are ragging on you. But maybe it's but maybe it's fine because maybe you don't even listen to the pod. You know, probably not. Yeah, and and even the stats actually like total zone baseball references pre DRS defensive metric has him during his his peak years with the Giants at plus sixteen overall at second base. So hmm. his big negative seasons were early in his career and late when he was like you know late thirties or or forties. So I think. During his prime, like he was a perfectly cromulent defensive second baseman, and obviously he was one of the better hitters at that position all time. So again, like it's a, a reasonable Hall of Fame case. Yeah. He was not like a, a total clunker out there. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a total clunker. It's fine. Oh, yeah. man. I I come here not to bury Jeff Kent, but not even to praise him either, but just to say he was 
pretty okay. He's pretty okay, you know? <laughs> pretty okay at playing second base. So if he ends up in the Hall of Fame, that is fine. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> really, like, it was, uh, you know, Jeff Kent and, and Aurelia, there were like 304 opportunities with uh, Aurelia on the field and Kent, and, and no one else has more than 40, which is like Ramon Martinez, or, or 46, I guess, Ray Durham. So he just didn't really have any other regular partners, at least at the major league level. Right. So, so it's, you know, kind of faint praise, I guess, when he's saying no one was better than Jeff Kent because he didn't have that many other double play partners and they weren't, for the most part, really elite defensive second baseman. Yeah. But it is still technically true. Technically true. Mm-hmm. All right. And I guess we can do a, a pass blast now before we get to our guest. We have a guest. I haven't mentioned that, but we yeah. do. But this is the inaugural pass blast provided by new pass blaster and perhaps final pass blaster. We will see who will bring us up to the present day. David Lewis. So David uh, Jacob Pomeranke, previous past blaster, gave us a, a little summary of David last time. But David would like to be credited as an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. That sort of sums it up in one line. But he's also interned for Sabre and interned for the Hall of Fame and is a, a big history buff in general. So here is his first submission. And he headlines it, Frick Pitches the Spitball. So, 1961, 40 years after outlawing the spitball and 50 years prior to banning spider attack, Major League Baseball briefly considered reinstating the spitball as a legal pitch. In 1961, Roger Maris hit a record 61 home runs while his Yankees set the single-season team record with 240 homers. Following the season, Commissioner Ford C. Frick supported a proposal to reduce the frequency of the long ball. In a New York Times article published on November 7, 1961, Frick suggests that the spitball would bring an element of surprise back to baseball while lowering home run totals. Frick continued, quote, The most effective spitball is the one that the pitcher doesn't throw. The glove in front of the face routine that a pitcher goes through preparatory to throwing a spitball is just part of the psychology of throwing the batter off stride. More often than not, in the old days, the pitcher never threw the spitter. And David continues, later that year, at baseball's annual winter meetings, the proposal to legalize the spitball was introduced to the Rules Committee by White Sox Traveling Secretary Ed Short. Despite Frick's best efforts, the committee voted 8-1 to one in favor of sustaining the ban on the spitball. So that's interesting to me. This may have come up in a previous podcast, but it's interesting to me just because we're we're always uh, such prisoners of the moment and the offensive environment. It seems we're always so reactionary. Like if a lot of homers are being hit, if there's a lot of offense, it's like, oh boy, what can we do? Right. Should we bring back the spitball? If like pitchers are too dominant, let's uh, ban the spitball. It's always just sort of swinging wildly from one pole to another, and we never exactly decide what we want baseball to look like in any right. kind of formal way when it comes to the offensive environment. So it's always sort of ad hoc. It's like, oh, we got to make an adjustment here. We got to put our thumb on the scale. Let's uh, unban this thing we previously banned, or let's ban this thing anew and we'll just sort of somehow try to find an, an equilibrium here so it's it's funny because you know it's like the spitball is perfectly fine at sometimes and then like the pitchers get too good or it gets dangerous or whatever and it's like oh we got to ban this thing and then the hitters have the upper hand oh we got to bring back the spitball and then right after that of course there was 
uh, the pitchers, you're the pitcher era after they changed the strike zone and some other things. And and then it's like, oh, well, we got to change the strike zone back and we got to, you know, lower the mound. <laughs> and then we get to the 2020s and it's like, oh, too much sticky stuff and the pitchers are too good. Let's ban all sorts of sticky stuff, let alone the spitball. So it's just it's always just kind of wildly pinging back and forth, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know if there's like a a more, I don't know, rigorous way that we should do this. Like we should all just decide this is the the ideal way. This is what we want the sport to look like. We'll all vote. We'll all have a say. And then we will sort of scientifically, you know, lab league and all the rest. And and we'll figure out how to bring things into line with the specifications that that we have decided on. I mean, I guess they're they're trying to do that now. But again, who knows? Like offense is uh, up and then it's like, oh, we need to bring back the shifts. <laughs> I would not be surprised if if that happens at some point in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, you can uh, enjoy David's Pass Blast stylings for the next oh, 60 plus episodes. So 70, who knows? We'll see. And uh, I will link to the various places that you can find him on Twitter and uh, his website and so forth. He's on Twitter at dgarflewis. And uh, also he has a Substack where he writes about baseball history, ballparks.substack.com. All right. So we've got a guest. And our guest is uh, somewhat Hall of Fame related, but but very importantly different from the Hall of Fame, too. So I've mentioned on previous episodes that there are alternatives to the Hall of Fame. There are alternatives, if you will. Will you? I don't know. Some people probably will. And some of them are are very statistically based and are just sort of uh, explicitly, you know, when people say about the hall, it's not the hall of stats. Well, there is a hall of stats, right? Hallofstats.com, which uh, we've talked to the founder, Adam Durowski, about. And there are things like the hall of merit at Baseball Think Factory, you know, sort of more objective, statistically based ways of having a hall of fame and recognizing baseball greatness. Because the hall of fame in Cooperstown it's kind of tough to pin it down, right? Like, right. is it is it the best baseball players? And how do you define who's the best? And that changes over time. And history is messy. And, and if it were just tracking different eras and what people thought about who was the best baseball player in that era, that would be okay. But it's also inconsistent in other ways because there's all this cronyism and there are multiple methods and ways you can get in. And then some people will say, well, it's the Hall of Fame. And so fame is an important criterion, but it's not really. I mean, it's not explicitly like the voting instructions don't say just put in the most famous people, right? And so it's inconsistent and and it can be sort of squishy and frustrating at times. And so I like these alternatives that are very clear about what their missions are. Either we're putting in the guys with the best stats or we're not. We're going to put in the guys who are famous or, or legendary in some way. And our folk heroes, whether or not they had the best stats, and I think prime among those is the baseball reliquary, which is one of the only alternatives with an actual physical presence like the museum in Cooperstown. Right. And the baseball reliquary lists these criteria for election to the Shrine of the Eternals. First, the distinctiveness of play, either good or bad. The uniqueness of character and personality. So that's kind of like the character clause, except it's not good character. It's just the uniqueness of character and personality. And finally, the imprint that the individual has made upon the baseball landscape. 
So that's all fairly subjective, but I think it allows room for people who don't fit into the formal Hall of Fame rubric and yet are still extremely important to baseball history. And a lot of those are in the Shrine of the Eternals. So that's been around since the late 90s, and we're going to talk to the current steward of the baseball reliquary and the Shrine of the Eternals, Professor Joe Price, who will also talk to us about his uh, scholarship with baseball and religion and his prolific career as a national anthem singer and the Institute for Baseball Studies that he has set up at Whittier College and much more fun conversation coming right up. All right, we are back, and we're welcoming our guest, Joe Price. Sometimes we say that a guest needs no introduction, but Joe needs an introduction, not because he's not well-known, but because he's just done so darn many things and still does that we have to lay them all out there. Joe is a professor emeritus in the Department of Religious Studies at Whittier College. He's the author of several books about religion or baseball or religion and baseball, He's an accomplished national anthem singer at baseball games, which he wrote about in one of his books. He's the co-director of the Institute for Baseball Studies, a name that I love, at Whittier, and most relevant of all to our conversation today. He's also the current caretaker of the Baseball Reliquary. Joe, hello. Hello. It's good to be with you. Good to have you. So there's any number of places we could start given that long list of credentials there, but I guess we can begin with the reliquary just to sort of set the scene. Could you describe what it is, what its mission is, and how you came to be involved with it and with its late founder and and your friend, Terry Cannon? Yes. The simplest answer to what it is is the It's the Fans Baseball Hall of Fame. That's a phrase that Jim Bouton used uh, once he was inducted in one of the earliest classes of inductees. On the celebration of the 40th anniversary of his publication of Ball Four, he made a presentation for the baseball reliquary that I attended. Before that time, I had not known of the reliquary, but I fell in love with its, hmm, its less than serious take on life by being very serious about baseball. <laughs> Terry was a Terry Cannon was a genius in terms of being able to foresee how the stories about baseball and the the basically the events are more important than the statistics and so who what baseball players have exercised the greatest influence on fans' lives, on American culture. And so he founded the Baseball Reliquary as a way to enhance the storytelling of the oddities, eccentrics, the story makers uh, of baseball. So some of the inductees into the Reliquary's Shrine of the Eternals are indeed also recognized in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But for the most part, the inductees to the Shrine of the Eternals, which is the hallmark event for the reliquary, (laughs) most of the inductees are uh, 
persons whose names might not be most familiar to even well-informed fans. For instance, Nancy Faust, uh, the organist for the Chicago White Sox, who invented baseball walk-up music, or music played during the game that reflects on what's happening in the game itself. Dr. Frank Job, who invented the uh, Tommy John surgery, is an inductee mm-hmm. into the Shrine of the Eternals. Um, the San Diego chicken, Ted Giannoukoulos, <laughs> is inducted. So it's not necessarily who has excelled on the field as much as who has stories to tell about why baseball is important in their lives and uh how it has influenced fans and American culture in general. And in the process of doing that, it has anticipated some of the figures that the Hall of Fame would either eventually recognize with induction or uh, would would have strong debates around and, and perhaps see that had they had made a mistake by not inducting them. They're, you know, Marvin Miller and a number of Negro Leagues players are in there. So I'm curious, how is how is the slate assembled? How do you think about who sort of rises to the level of occupying that space in baseball culture that you then present to your members? Oh, various members propose um, possible nominees for the uh, the ballot each year. Uh, the ballot for the reliquaries. Uh, Shrine of the Eternals has 50 names and brief biographies about each of the nominees, uh, each of the candidates. And from the list, all members, all active members of the reliquary can vote for 10 of the, uh, the candidates. Each year, the top three vote getters are inducted into the Shrine of the Eternals. That means that someone with 24% of the vote uh, is likely to get in, uh, in part because the number of uh, candidates is so large, and in part because there are um, the, the distribution of votes then measures out in that way. Unlike the uh, Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, where, of course, three-fourths of all votes must uh, include uh, a candidate in order for induction to take place. Ours is the top three vote-getters, and that means that uh, each year there is a full class elected, and each year there uh, are they are honored in the shrine uh, induction ceremony. Yeah, I wanted to to ask about that number three, because uh, the nice thing about this is that you never have a year where no one gets in. I mean, as long as uh, everything is operating, there are going to be three members, but they're not going to be more than three members, right? It's uh, it's like the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the, the number of the counting shall be three, right? Always three. <laughs> and yes. I wondered what the thinking was there on Terry's part, and, and now that you're continuing it and its legacy... Because, of of course, the reliquary came about in 1999, that's 60 years after the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. 
And when the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown came about, I think there were five players in the initial class, and then they let a whole bunch of other people in even before those uh, five were inducted, I believe. So they were sort of making up for lost time. And of course, there's been a lot of baseball history since that opening so three is nice because uh, you, you get to guarantee that someone will be in. But I wonder whether there's been thought of sort of letting in more people just because uh, there have been so many over the years uh, that there's a, a lot of catching up to do. I'm not sure we could afford more than three. <laughs> <laughs> Each year we attempt to honor those who are living by bringing them to the, uh, the ceremony itself. Uh, this year, there was only one living person from the class of 2020, uh, the most recent induction that we've had, and that was Bob Costas, who, because our induction ceremony was concurrent with the World Series, he was unable to attend, but he did send a, a video acceptance. Uh, the other two inductees were uh, deceased, so... Uh, we make an effort to bring the participants. Uh, and frankly, since we are a grassroots organization with an annual membership due of dues of $25, it uh, is pressing on the budget to be able to afford more than three. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, given that reality, and I wouldn't want you to speak out of turn as a leader of the organization, but this is something that Cooperstown has dealt with also, right? The, the tension between wanting to honor players while they're still alive to enjoy it, but having kind of a backlog. Are there particular favorites of yours on your on your ballot every year who you're hoping will, will get in sooner rather than later? Yes. I have a favorite that I voted for every year, Annie Savoy, a fictional oh. character. <laughs> but I imagine that uh, we would be able to get her to be embodied in a particular way that could be fascinating. Uh, we have, of course, in the year that uh, Charlie Brown was identified as one of the recipients, Charles Schultz's son was accepting of the for the award. So fictional characters have been elected to the Shrine of the Eternals. Uh, and I think Annie Savoy... Uh, the monologue that begins Bull Durham is, I think, one of the great pieces that fuses baseball and religion in profound ways. Yes, I, I'm not surprised that uh, Annie would appeal to you, given your interest in, in your writing uh, with the Church of Baseball. And I know Ron Shelton of Bull Durham, who was uh, just on our show last week, he's been a big supporter of the Reliquary as well. So I imagine uh, he would be there to accept on Annie's behalf, if not Susan Sarandon as well. You know, my preference would be that Ron would bring Susan and that he would uh, introduce Susan to accept the award. Uh, Ron mm -hmm. has been very supportive of the Reliquary uh, and the Institute for Baseball Studies. He has participated in a couple of programs on campus for our students, and that has enriched their experience. Um, and in the most recent uh, induction ceremony, Max Patkin was mm -hmm. inducted, and Ron had the best stories about Max in uh, very personal ways. Uh, so it, 
Ron has just been a godsend to the reliquary. Yeah, and I really like figures like that because uh, people will say about the Cooperstown Hall of Fame sometimes, well, you've got to put this person in because you can't tell the story of baseball without so-and-so, right? And the idea is that that's the point of that institution, and it probably is to some extent with the museum, but with the people in the plaques, uh, there's a lot of the story of baseball that's missing there. And I think a lot of the people who sort of slip through that crack end up in the Shrine of the Eternals. And so you think about uh, Frank Job, as you said, or Bill James, or just so many other, I mean, Kurt Flood, right? Marvin Miller was in the Shrine of the Eternals long before he was in the Hall of Fame. These really foundational formative figures who have shaped the game in just long-lasting and essential ways, there may be no place for them in the Hall of Fame because they don't fit into exactly one of the categories, right? But there's a a place for them in in the Baseball Reliquary in the Shrine of the Eternals. So they're just a lot of no-brainers, basically. How could you tell the story of baseball without this person or that person who are missing from from the plaque room, at least, in Cooperstown? Other examples are Jim Abbott and William Dummy Hoy. They overcame such physical difficulties to be able to play that uh, their stories need to be told, but their their uh, statistical records are not sufficient for even warranting getting on the ballot at Cooperstown. Yeah, and do you think of it typically as uh, it would be almost redundant to put in players or people who are already in the Hall of Fame? As you said, there is some overlap, and certainly there are some players who are just so culturally significant that they have to be in both. I mean, you know, Jackie Robinson and, and Roberto Clemente, etc. But for instance, uh, Babe Ruth is not in the Shrine of the Eternals, right? Or or Mickey Mantle, you know, these uh, legendary sort of figures who are in the Hall of Fame. So do they do well in the voting, or is it sort of like, eh, they don't need us. You know, they they get plenty of publicity as it is. It's not clear that they have ever been on the ballot for the Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Babe Ruth snubbed. <laughs> and I, for the first 10 years of the shrine uh, of the reliquary's existence, I did not see the ballots. Uh, I do have access to them now. And that's a good question. I should go back and take a look at the first ballot for the not the ballot itself, the first description of the candidates for induction in 1999, because I'm not sure who was on it that uh, would have been in the Hall of Fame. Uh, That year, Doc Ellis was elected. Mm -hmm. Kurt Flood was elected. Neither of them would be on the Hall of Fame ballots. So it would be interesting to see whether there was an intentional exclusion of the the patriarchs of the game by Terry and others who put together the first list of 50 candidates. Mm-hmm. There's uh, also mentioning uh, figures related to Bull Durham. Steve Dalkowski is in the Shrine of the Eternals, right? One of the inspirations for Nuke Lelouch. So he's a, a great example, just another legend who uh, never played in the major league. So, of course, he can't be in the Hall of Fame, but he can be an Eternal. He is an Eternal. And I, I wanted to ask, sometimes when someone gets in who has been neglected by Cooperstown or, or doesn't typically get this type of recognition, it can really be meaningful for them, right? You mentioned Doc Ellis, 
when he got in, I read at the induction ceremony, he was in tears, right, about being recognized in this way. He is not the only one who has been in tears. Others have been as well. It is so meaningful. J. Rodney Richard was not only in tears at the beginning, he then utilized his, or he, in his acceptance, he began to preach uh, about the wonders of baseball and about faith and such. Uh, he He was overwhelmed by being recognized, especially having overcome some of the difficulties that he had experienced, uh, somewhat like Dalkowski um, or Jimmy Pearsall, uh, who uh, is also an inductee in the Shrine of the Eternals. The Those who have overcome so much to be able to continue to share their love of the game, that's what the Shrine is all about. It seems that, you know, as we have these ongoing debates about what the Hall of Fame should be and who it should recognize and with what frequency and urgency um, that there might be some things that Cooperstown could learn from the reliquary. But I'm curious if you actually prefer that they sort of have different projects. You know, is it to the Shrine of the Eternal's benefit that they stand apart from Cooperstown? I like to think that we're the left coast alternative to, uh, <laughs> to Cooperstown. I like that. It is true that uh, we have different agendas. Some of the artifacts that we have have such a suspicious provenance (laughs) that they would not even qualify for consideration by Cooperstown. And yet these artifacts help to tell the story in vivid ways that uh, make the story more interesting and fun. Is there ever any bad blood about who gets in and and who doesn't, or is it all very wholesome? Because, of course, uh, that's something that characterizes the Cooperstown debates. Some of them can be fun debates and useful educational debates, but often it turns into people dunking on each other's candidates and arguing why so-and-so isn't qualified. So when the results are announced, uh, do people say, how did that person get in, or how didn't this person get in, or does everyone just sort of celebrate what happened? Well, Terry had long wanted Rube Foster to be inducted. Uh, he thought mm-hmm. that it was a, a tragic oversight of most of the voters uh, to minimize the contributions that Rube Foster had made uh, as a player, as a an owner, uh, as a founder of the Negro Leagues. So thankfully, The last class to be elected before Terry's death was one that included Rube Foster. Uh, So I'm not sure that Terry ever thought that there was bad blood for by the members of the reliquary for not having previously elected Rube Foster, but Rube had been on the ballot for multiple years. There's no expiration date for the number of times that a person can be on the ballot, but usually the bottom uh, 15% of the vote-getters rotate off until there's an outcry to have them reinstated. You mentioned the artifacts that the reliquary houses and how some of them are of perhaps questionable provenance um, or meant to be symbolic representations of uh, events in baseball history. We can 
maybe call them that rather <laughs> than accusing them. Um, and obviously the, the part of Cooperstown that isn't the Hall of Fame ballot is the museum. I'm curious how you guys think about the role that the reliquary can play for researchers and fans who want to learn more about the game. Well, we have currently on display um, one of the sacristies that was used uh, purportedly by a priest to administer last rites to Babe Ruth. So Babe Ruth is, to a certain extent, a part of the reliquary, but not in uh, a way that calls for his induction into the Shrine of the Eternals. Uh, instead, what's the story about uh, his his life that would be enhanced by uh, having the sacristy used for his last rites? That appeals to students and gets them interested in Babe Ruth in a different way than uh, watching him trot around the bases uh, in videos of some of his home run trots. It humanizes him. It also puts uh, the end of his life into a different um, perspective, as does uh, perhaps the partially smoked cigar that was uh, attributed to uh, having been left in a, a place where he had smoked uh, cigars on pr previous occasions. <laughs> Those are good storytelling about the human character of the player rather than just the on-field statistical accomplishments. And of course, uh, there are a lot of other artifacts that are not possibly apocryphal, right? There's just a, a lot of history that you all have collected. And can you give some sense of where it has been displayed over time? Because there are other attempts to uh, create different baseball halls of fame, but very few of them have some sort of physical presence as the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown does and as the Reliquary does. And currently, a lot of that collection is displayed at, at your school at the Institute for Baseball Studies that you helped to found. So tell us a little bit about how people have been able to or, or can currently access everything that the Reliquary has collected. Well, we don't have the physical space to exhibit all of the materials at all times. We do have several out on display now. One of the genuine artifacts is uh, Ralph Carhart's Hall Ball. Mm -hmm. Ralph Carhart found a ball in Cooperstown Creek and decided that to memorialize all of the inductees into the Hall of Fame, it would be appropriate to take into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, it would be appropriate to take that ball and have it photographed with each of the players, living uh, players uh, who had been inducted into the Hall of Fame, and to the grave sites of those who uh, were deceased. So he took the ball to all of the pl uh, living players and to the grave sites of all of the deceased, made the photographs, and once he had the ball, he offered it to the Hall of Fame, but it didn't meet their their criteria for acceptance into their archives, so he gave it to the baseball reliquary, where we now have it on display uh, among a number of art pieces and uh, other 
uh, artifacts uh, related to the game, including the headpiece of uh, the San Diego chicken. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how do people visit? I, I know that during the pandemic, uh, it wasn't open to the public and, and you had to make appointments uh, for some time after that. Is that still the case? Because it looks like quite an extensive collection. I mean, if you want to share a little bit about the history of the Institute for Baseball Studies, I know that there was some skepticism right on the part of the administration initially about whether this was uh, worthy of being an institute and, and being studied, but it has since quite come around. In 2012, Terry Cannon approached me with the idea of uh, Whittier College archiving the research materials that had been collected by the baseball reliquary. And I thought it was a great idea. So did two of my colleagues, Mike McBride and Charles Adams. And we uh, pooled our interests and appealed to the administration to uh, provide space for us to have basically a research room where we could uh, display items, art, and books for research by students and the public, and that the Institute could uh, basically provide a bridge between the college and the community in effective ways. Uh, initially, the administration uh, thought that it was Joe Price and his wacky ideas uh, going yet one step farther, but we persevered. And finally, the administration allowed us to utilize a uh, an out-of-the-way room that had marvelous built-in bookshelves and high ceilings so that we're able to uh, display art that has been contributed to the reliquary and to the institute, um, as well as now about uh, 4,000 uh, books uh, plus uh, media guides, journals, and other bound materials related to baseball uh, in American culture. Are there any artifacts that folks have wanted to donate that you you guys have turned away? <laughs> Presently, we have we turn away the offer for more books. We have about mm. 125 boxes of duplicate books at this point. So we, we cannot store all of the books that we presently have uh, as duplicates. So we have to restrict the offer of donations of books to those that would fill gaps in our holdings. Um, we've also refused some things that just didn't fit. Um, we were offered a marvelous collection of baseball gloves, about 200 baseball gloves, spanning the last century uh, and perhaps even beyond. We didn't have the space to store 200 gloves, nor had an idea about how we could incorporate those into the mission of the Institute, which is basically a resource center for students to study baseball in American history and society and to extend that research opportunity to fans and to scholars elsewhere. 
And I know that the last couple of years have been challenging for the reliquary. They've been challenging for a lot of people. But as you start to move into 2023, what do you hope for the reliquary's future? Well, uh, I hope that we are able to resume regular open hours in a scheduled way. It's still possible for people to schedule an appointment. And really, it's sort of like making a reservation at a restaurant. It's just a matter of getting on the list so that we're certain that we will be, that, that we will have the facility open at that time. So we're open in ways that we were not able to be open two years ago during the uh, first shutdowns of the pandemic. But we are not yet open to the extent that we can uh, say our regular hours are and then uh, have those posted so that people can drop in at their convenience. Uh, in part, that's because we have no paid staff. Uh, the two directors of the Institute are Charles Adams and myself. We're retired and we volunteer our time. So, uh, we end up being in the Institute, uh, about, uh, 10 to 15 hours a week. So we, we are able to adjust our availability to people who want to attend or to view the the artifacts, the art, and the or just do some reading in the literature that we have available. And are there plans for a, a new class of the shrine? As you noted, the 2020 class was inducted, and since then, with Terry passing away in 2020 and then the pandemic, there hasn't been a new one. Are there plans to resume the elections and inductions? Yes, we will resume but we're constrained by something even more uh, confining than the, the pandemic. And that is that the host of the website for the baseball reliquary somehow closed the reliquary's account on January the 1st, 2021. And it took more than a year and a half to be able to restore the archived copy of the website, which is not interactive at this point. So we're developing a new website. It should be up by the time that the baseball season starts. And with that, it will make membership renewal easier. At this point, we have the database for uh for membership that had been active in the three years prior to the pandemic. So we'll be able to contact those uh, members. But uh, at present, uh, membership, current membership is less than a major league roster. Um, so that's not adequate for, for voting in a new class. We need to have the 300 members or so who are usually the electors for the class to be a part of active membership for us to be able to, um, to have the next class, which I imagine will be in 2024. 
Got it. I was going to to ask if there were ways that people could join or support your efforts or donate things, etc. I will link to the current website, of course, but it sounds like maybe things are on hold for the moment as far as uh, getting directly involved, or is there anything that you would like to plug while we have you? Uh, well, it's possible to join by sending a check. At, I, I know it's out of mode, but uh, that's <laughs> at this point the only way that we can process memberships is for someone to send a check for their membership fee. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to perhaps contact me by my email address, and uh, then I can send the membership information. Uh, and post office box information uh, about the reliquaries uh, address. We do expect that the same URL that uh, presently identifies the archived uh, website will be the uh, URL for the new website since it has been secured for uh, the next three years. All right. I will link on our show page to your Whittier College page, which uh, has your email address if anyone wants to reach you. And maybe we can close with just a a couple non-directly reliquary-related questions, because I'm curious about your scholarship and your writing about baseball and religion. Now, Meg and I are, are not very religious people. Granted, we have not tried them all like Annie Savoy has, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but we, we are in the Church of Baseball with you. So you've written about some of the maybe similar functions that baseball serves, or, or I suppose uh, any sport to some extent might serve. So what parallels do you draw there? The most significant parallels are basically the the characteristics of a religious community, of faith, of uh, the depth of belief or passion, uh, the way that uh, baseball tends to shape a worldview for many, uh, that corresponds to how a religious affiliation shapes one's life. And so that, in essence, is what I'm interested in, not so much whether or not a particular athlete uses his or her religion and prominence in sport as a way to uh, offer a testimony about their religious faith. Uh, That, I understand, is being uh, sports and religion, or religion and sports. I'm more interested in how sports function as a religion rather than uh, how religions influence sport or how sports are played by religious groups. The House Mm -hmm. of David, the Parkway Baptist Church softball team. So my my interests are much more in the phenomenon of sports as an expression, as an experience of uh, a religious worldview. Mm-hmm. And I guess another thing they have in common is that sometimes the, the leadership can be frustrating in, in the administration, <laughs> and you have to remind yourself uh, what you love about the actual thing as opposed to the infrastructure of it at times. And uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is your national anthem singing. 
I don't know whether you're you're still an active anthem singer, but you have been extremely active at times. And of course, it was uh, 2011, right, that you toured the country, you and your wife in an RV, just going to 100 or more minor league parks and, and singing as you went and then writing a book about it called Perfect Pitch, the national anthem for the national pastime. How did you become an anthem singer? And, and what are some of the challenges? Because uh, the national anthem has a reputation as being a difficult song to sing, right? Which uh, leads to a lot of uh, famous and infamous missteps, right? And mistakes and people forgetting the words and so forth or not being able to hit the notes. So I'd be curious about your, your technique and you know whether you just kind of get in and get out and it's all business and you just uh, deliver it straightforward or, or whether you milk it a little bit as, as some singers do. No, I I respect the anthem as being for the people. And so it's not about whether or not I can embellish it in any particular way or add ornamentation to it. I've been blessed and trained with uh, vocal training, and I sing it straight. When I was in Las Vegas to sing for the uh, Las Vegas team on the anthem tour, as I parked the car and the uh, attendant recognized me as the anthem singer, he asked how long my anthem would be that night. And I said, well, depending upon what kind of reverberation there was from the speakers, it would be between a minute and 15 and a minute, 18 seconds. (laughs) Uh, And he said, "Uh, fine. He said, "Uh, we have an over under bet among the staffers on how long the anthem will last each night. I'm going to win tonight. (laughs) You got inside info. (laughs) Yeah. The biggest challenge was perhaps the first anthem. When I was a graduate student in Chicago, I read an article about Bill Veck fulfilling a lifelong dream of an ambidextrous pitcher to have a major league tryout. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a lifelong dream of wanting to sing the national anthem at major league games, so I wrote to Bill Veck. And uh, about six weeks later, received a call from his son, uh, Mike Veck, who was then in the front office of the White Sox. And Mike Veck said, would you like to sing on Fan Appreciation Day? And I said, fine. Uh, when do you want me to audition? He said, you're fool enough to ask. We're fool enough to let you do it. <laughs> that story came back to be a part of the anthem tour in 2011 when Mike Veck was gracious enough to allow me to sing in three of the ballparks where he had partial team ownership. And he enjoyed my reflecting on that initial occasion for singing. The White Sox was a challenge because I was terrified by 50,000 fans being in attendance and whether I would forget the words. So I had them (laughs) written on a note card in my jacket pocket. And as I went to uh, the microphone before the game, I indicated to the the audiologist who was there uh, that I was apprehensive about the words. And he said, ah, said, if if you forget them, just scat them like Nat King Cole did when he uh, <laughs> forgot them here. I said, well, I, I'm not Nat King Cole and I don't scat. So uh, <laughs> it didn't quite work. But the range is not as much a challenge as just making sure that staying up to tempo and uh, 
singing it as as um, respectfully as possible so that others who are in the stands might sing along if they so desired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people appreciate a singer who just, uh, you know, takes care of business, gets in, gets out, lets us get on with the game, play ball, right? <laughs> so I think that's probably appreciated. And I don't know if this is up to date, but your Whittier page says uh, that you've sung it for more than 125 professional baseball games in 20 major league ballparks and 100 minor league stadiums. Have the butterflies gotten better over time? Oh, yes, they've gotten better. The final anthem that I sang on the anthem tour in 2011, uh, it was the 104th performance. And as I got to singing The Land of the Free, it was sort of an otherworldly experience. I was thinking as I got to uh, the that line, Yes, I'm free. I don't have to drive the RV anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Which big league ballparks are you missing? Most of the East Coast. Okay. Primarily because they think that if I'm, uh, I must be really crazy to pay my own way to volunteer to sing. I have sung in uh, the Washington Nationals Park, and I have sung in Atlanta and Tampa, but I have not uh, sung in Boston or the New York stadiums, uh, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or Miami. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you can cross more off the list if you'd like to. But but getting the initial call from from Bill Vack or at least from Mike Vack is is pretty good because uh, Bill Vack, favorite of mine, and also a member of the Shrine of the Eternals <laughs> and and also the Hall of Fame. So we wish you success uh, with all of your endeavors and with the reliquary specifically. And we will stay tuned for any updates and we will let our listeners know. And of course, on our show page, we'll include links to your books and all these other resources that we've discussed. So this was a a great pleasure and and I wish you the best uh, with the reliquary and the shrine because I think it's serving an important purpose when it comes to preserving baseball legends and bringing them to people's attention. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a joy to be able to talk about baseball here as we're awaiting the blooming of the grass uh, in the (laughs) spring training. Yes. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks to those of you who help support the podcast on Patreon so that we can keep making it. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jacob Swartz, Jay Walsh, Christian Scarborough, Paul Hendrickson, and Javad Vaziri. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, inching ever closer to 1,000 members. Highly encourage everyone to join the Discord group, even at the lowest tier of Patreon support. It is accessible to you. It's become a great community. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes on your own personal private feed, plus playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships and more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us via the Patreon site. If not, you can always email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance today and this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. The man of way.
No, no. 